We naturally want to be in control of our lives. The idea that someone else might have authority over us can feel threatening. We see this in the response of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, and we can see it in our own lives. In this message from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 12, David Platt encourages us to see the authority of Jesus as something to be submitted to and to gladly embrace. When we turn from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, we are restored to God, the one we have rebelled against. Now, for those who belong to Jesus, his authority is the greatest news in all the world. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message entitled, Why the Authority of Jesus is the Greatest News in the World. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 11. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to, Mark chapter 11. And as you're turning, I wanna welcome those of you in other locations across Metro DC, as well as some of you online who are physically unable to be with us today. It's good to be together as one church around God's Word. One of the things I love about this Word is how it can confront us and encourage us at the exact same time. This word, like in one verse, has power to convict us and comfort us, to break us, and at the same time, put us back together again better than we were before. There's no word like this word. And I was thinking about this morning to follow our church's Bible reading in Numbers chapter 7, the last verse, Numbers 789. It says, Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, and he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. It's just this beautiful picture of Moses alone with God and talking to God, and God, and it's a picture of his mercy, God speaking to Moses. And it just hit me in a fresh way as I'm sitting there like, whoa, that's what I'm doing right now. I, I am alone in this room talking to God. And God is, God, like not just anybody's talking to me. Like God is talking to me. And obviously it's not just me, it's any of us. What a privilege. And then to come together in a setting like this, even a unique setting where we're spread across different locations and together for God to speak by his spirit through his word. And I was so encouraged, like even between services when I was standing out in the lobby just talking with different people and, and different people sharing how this word landed on their hearts today in ways I never could have planned or like God speaking to their hearts. I pray that. I pray that over the next few minutes, you, right where you're sitting right now, you would hear God speaking to your heart, God himself talking to you, not just us together, but to you in ways that may confront or encourage or convict or comfort or break or put back together or all of the above. And he'll do all of that through his word if we'll listen, if we'll let it happen. So 
Let's go. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. I, I just want, I want to read through this passage just verse by verse and offer some commentary along the way. And then if you're taking notes, I want to give you seven takeaways from this one passage. Uh, just a variety of the ways this passage confronts and encourages and convicts and comforts and breaks and puts back together. So Mark chapter 11, verse 27 says, they came again to Jerusalem. So let's get the context here. Remember, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday evening, and he looked around the temple and he left. Then Monday morning, he went back into the city and caused quite a scene. Turned over all these tables in the temple and talked about what was happening there and how it was wrong before God and then he left. That was Monday. So now it's Tuesday, and he's back again in Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, so this is basically the religious elite of the day, the ruling Jewish authority, the experts in God's word, the overseers of God's people, they came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, who do you think you are? Have you ever said that to somebody? Or have you ever really wanted to say it to somebody, but you restrained yourself? Like, inside, you're like, really, bro? Like, who are you to say that to me or to them or about or to do this? Like, oftentimes in a way that comes across as presumptuous or offensive or judgmental, that's what these religious leaders are saying. Who are you to come into the temple of God where we are the leaders and overturn tables and tell us how what we're doing is wrong? And what authority? You might circle it in your Bible because it repeats, what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Don't you hate it when you ask somebody a question and they reply with a question? It can sometimes make you feel like they're evading your question. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. As we're going to see, Jesus is actually answering their question in a way that exposes their hearts. Jesus says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what, you might circle it again, authority, I do these things. And here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, Jesus' reference to the baptism of John here was likely a reference to the entire ministry of John the Baptist, including his teaching and his baptizing. If you'll remember, this is actually how Mark started his gospel account, his story of the life of Jesus. This was many months ago when we started working through the book of Mark. So maybe turn back to Mark chapter 1. I'll have it on the screen here too to see how Mark started this whole story. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he said, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Mark is telling us about a messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord. And he gets more specific when he gets to verse 4. He says, John is that messenger who appeared 
baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this baptism of John. Now watch this because John's ministry of baptism was ultimately pointing to somebody else. Mark chapter 1 verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Very interesting, dude. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John says, my ministry is just preparing for somebody who's mightier than I am, who will baptize you not with water, but with the Holy Spirit of God. Which then leads to the next verse, Mark 1, 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, watch this, he saw the heavens being, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Whoa, what a scene. John baptizes Jesus. And we just had some baptisms here at Tyson's. Can you imagine somebody coming up out of the water and heavens open up? And the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice booms from heaven. God the Father saying to Jesus, you are my beloved son. Just hold on to that phrase for a little bit later. So the picture is, as John baptizes Jesus, God the Father and God the Spirit endorse the authority of Jesus as God the Son. And now we're getting a clue into how in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is definitely answering the question, because Jesus is forcing the religious elite to reckon with what John said about him and what John did with him, this moment in Mark chapter 1. So now, now back to Mark chapter 11. Jesus is asking, was this baptism from John, was it from heaven, i.e., to come from God, or from man? Answer me. And... The Bible says they discussed with one another. That's an interesting word. It's used seven times in the book of Mark. It's always in the context of people trying to evade the force of what Jesus just said to them. So these guys are like, what do we do? Because if we say it's from heaven, from God, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? That wouldn't be good for them. That would be admitting that everything we just read was true and from God. But shall we say, from man? For they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. In other words, if they say what they want to say, that John's ministry was not from God, then the crowds are going to revolt against them. They are stuck. So they answer Jesus, we don't know. That's quite a statement for the religious elite to make about one of the most popular religious movements of the day. We don't have a clue. 
And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what, you might circle it again, authority I do these things. You see how Jesus answered their question with his question. Jesus was making clear, John's authority and my authority comes from heaven. And then, so in the next verse, Jesus takes it to a whole nother level. And we can miss this because there's a chapter division here in Mark chapter 11. We think, okay, so this is a different story. Well, the reality is, Mark, these chapter divisions weren't there when Mark originally wrote this. So it wasn't like he was like, okay, in chapter 11, come back tomorrow, chapter 12, and start again. Like, that's to help us be able to reference Scripture. But it just goes from that verse into the next one. So he just keeps writing, and he tells us that Jesus began to speak to them in parables. These religious leaders and others listening in, Jesus tells them a story to illustrate what he just talked about, his authority. Jesus says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus spoke to a fig tree which is a symbol of the places in the Old Testament where God had referred to his people, the people of Israel, as a fig tree. Well, now he tells a story about a vineyard, which was also an image God had used to describe his people in the Old Testament. I'll give you one example. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, included it of stones. You'll notice the imagery is similar here. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. That's describing God's people as a vineyard. So as Jesus starts the story, these religious leaders know he's talking about the people of Israel, the vineyard planted by God. And Jesus says, when the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get them some fruit from the vineyard. So now you got the picture set up. The vineyard is clearly God's people. The owner is clearly God. And God sends servants to the tenants the overseers of that vineyard, i.e. the religious leaders of the day. So the story is set up now for verse 3. Those tenants took the servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And sent in, he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now at this point, the tension is rising. Because if you're one of these religious leaders, you know who you are in this story. As the tenant, and you know who the servants are. Earlier in this chapter, remember when Jesus was overturning tables in the temple? He quoted from Jeremiah chapter 7. You've made this place a den of robbers. Well, also in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25 and 26, we read, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, God says, I have persistently sent all my what? Servants, the what? Prophets to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their necks. They did worse than their fathers. These religious leaders know that Jesus is recounting the history of God's people, how God sent servants, prophets to his people, but God's people did not listen to them. Instead, they beat them. 
and killed them, exiled them. Tradition tells us Isaiah was sawn in two. The prophet Zechariah was stoned to death. Hebrews chapter 11 later tells us some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains, imprisonment. They, went, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. This is the history of servants sent by God to his vineyard, his people even John the Baptist, the most recent prophet, who Jesus has already mentioned, was beheaded, albeit by King Herod. But then, now watch this. The tension has been rising. Now Jesus is about to amp it up to a whole other level. Have you ever been in a conversation where you feel that tension rising, and then somebody says something that you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. Like, this is about to get really awkward. Well, Jesus starts talking about how the owner sent not just a servant. He had still one another, the owner, a beloved son. Hmm. A beloved son. And he sent the son to them, saying, they will respect my son. You recognize that phrase? When John baptized Jesus and heaven spoke God, saying, this is my what? Beloved son. The owner sent his beloved son to these tenants. And what did the tenants do? Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So what will the owner of the vineyard do then? Now Jesus is asking the question, and he answers it outright with unmistakable clarity. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Destroy the tenants? Things just went over the top with the tension in this conversation. He's going to destroy the tenants and give the vineyard, God's people, to other people to oversee. Not the people who are overseeing them now. Then he says, have you not read this scripture? And it's so interesting. Jesus quotes here from Psalm chapter 118. Why that's so interesting is because it's the exact same psalm that when Jesus came on Sunday into Jerusalem, the crowds were quoting from when he came. Psalm chapter 118, verse 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You remember that? Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the crowds were saying. Well, now Jesus pulls that same psalm back out, and he says, remember what it says right before that? In verse 22? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's what Jesus quotes from in Mark chapter 11, verse 10, and, or Mark chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. He switches imagery from a vineyard now to a building, and he talks about a stone that the builders totally reject 
But that stone is actually the cornerstone of the whole building. Now Jesus has gone for the jugular. He just told these religious leaders, not only is he the son sent by the Father, he is the cornerstone around which the whole people of God are built. And they are rejecting him. Not just rejecting him, they're wanting to arrest, beat, and kill him. That's why verse 12 says they were seeking to arrest him. They are so mad right now. But they feared the people. They're mad and afraid. For they perceived he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Just imagine Jesus looking at them, them looking at him. And then they turn and they walk away and plot to kill him. This is Tuesday. By Friday, Jesus will be dead. This is where things have just opened up between Jesus and the religious elite of the day. So, what does that story have to do with our lives? So much. God, through his word, and this story right now is wanting to confront and encourage, to convict and to comfort and to break and put us back together again if we will listen. So, seven takeaways, and I'm going to go pretty swiftly here because I want us to have some time in prayer to just soak them in. If you're taking notes, one, takeaway number one, trust Jesus' authority over all things. A clear takeaway from this word from God is that Jesus has divine authority, the authority of God himself. Jesus is sent by the Father. He's the only beloved son of the Father. He's equal in authority with God the Father. It's what this whole passage is about. If you were circling in your Bible, you circled authority four different times. And it's a word that Mark has already used repeatedly in this gospel. Quick tour, Mark chapter 1, verse 22. The crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching from the very beginning, for he taught them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. There's a difference here. He has authority. Verse 27 in Mark chapter 1, they were all amazed, the crowds, so they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Then the next chapter, Jesus heals a lame man and forgives his sins in front of the religious leaders and Mark tells us the story. Jesus looks at them and says, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, this man, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. In the chapters that follow, Jesus demonstrates his authority over natural disasters. He speaks, and the wind and the waves calm down. He shows his authority in the next chapter over demons, over disease. He shows his authority over death. As a young girl who was dead, he brings back to life. So here's a comforting takeaway. Trust Jesus' authority over all things. And I say this is comforting because, well, isn't it good news to know that disasters and disease and demons and evil spirits don't have authority over you? 
Isn't it good news that that diagnosis from your doctor does not have authority over you, that cancer does not rule over you, that tumors don't reign over you? Isn't it good news to know? Isn't it comforting news to know that death does not have authority over you? Uh, this is very comforting. Jesus has authority over everything, which means that no matter what comes at you or me in this world, as long as we have Jesus, we are safe and secure because we have the one who has authority over everything. Amen. Trust in him. That's part of the word God is speaking to hearts all across this room right now. Other locations, like trust in Jesus. In the middle of whatever trial you're walking through, that's weighing you down, temptation that's coming your way, know that Jesus has all authority over these things. And as you trust in him, you will make it through. You will make it through. In the words of Romans 8, if he is for you, who can be against you? You are more than a conqueror through Jesus. John 16, I, I tell you, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So rest in me. I, don't, I, don't, I could not sleep in peace tonight if I didn't trust that Jesus has authority over all things. This is comforting truth. And in the same passage, so trust Jesus' authority over all things. And second takeaway, submit to Jesus' authority over your life. So this is the, maybe the convicting side of this coin. If Jesus has authority over all things, And that means he has authority over me in every single facet of my life. So submit to his authority. God is saying right now to all of us, do not be like these religious leaders, stiffening their necks and bowing their backs against the authority of Jesus. God is speaking to a people that are, and I include myself in this, full of pride and prone to think we know best for our lives, and God is saying, I am worthy of all your trust with every facet of your life. Submit to Jesus' authority. Say to Jesus, you are Lord over it all. So lead me, guide me, direct me. I just want to follow you. Rise every morning. Get alone with Jesus and say, you're my Lord. Lead me today. And students, teenagers, start your day that way. You're my Lord. Lead me today. Men, women, go to work. You're, you're Lord of my life today. You're Lord of my work. Lead me. Everything I say, everything I do, everything I desire, every, every dollar I spend, you're Lord over it all. Every word I say, may it be pleasing to you. And live all day long following his lordship. Then lay your head on your pillow at night. Go to sleep resting in his authority over all things, including your life. This is the Christian life. Submit to Jesus' authority over your life. Which then leads to takeaway number three. Humbly consider the blind spots in your life. These religious leaders could not see that they were doing exactly what God's people had done throughout history, Opposing the one sent by God himself. And not just a servant, but the son. And it's so easy for us to read this passage and see 
now what they couldn't see then. So I just, I read this text and I just think about the tendency in me, in us, to miss blind spots right in front of us. I spent this week with a group of, uh, some time this week, with a, a group of white and black pastors together at the African American Museum downtown. And for, for most of them, it was the first time they'd walked through that museum. And I was struck all over again. Why, how could white pastors, including pastors who for other reasons worthy of so much esteem, were so blind to such evil that they were promoting And I just prayed, God, help me to see in my life today anything like that. Help us in the church. It wasn't just pastors, it was people, church, followers of Christ. So blind, God, open our eyes. And just start praying, God, what is it? What is it that we're missing today? Think about materialism. Are we blind? I just wonder if Christians a couple hundred years from now will look back on us and think, how could they spend so much on themselves and stuff and spend so little on caring for the poor and worship every Sunday? Like, I think about our, our comfortability with sexual immorality. It's just kind of normal to us. Yeah, everybody has these thoughts, these desires, and everybody looks at these images like it's just kind of normal. Or, and not just in our own lives, like we're entertained by it. We'll pay money to go look at a huge screen where we watch sexual immorality. It's like normal to us. We don't even think a thing about it. Just start thinking about what other ways are we just blind to injustice right around us today. God, help us to see the things in our lives that have become normal to us that are offensive to you. We need, we need God to do this. There are blind spots. By nature, we can't see them. We need God to open our eyes. Humbly consider the blind spots in your life. God, keep us from being like these religious leaders. Which leads to takeaway number four. Believe and speak what is true over what is popular. This passage paints a picture of people who were blinded by their lust for other people's approval and applause. They're always, all throughout this passage, they're calculating what will people think about us instead of what is right before God. Do you live like that sometimes? Are you a slave to pleasing people? Are you constantly thinking about what others think about you? Are you calculating? What do, what do they think? And particularly in ways that leads you to not believe or proclaim God's word? 
Like, believe this word is true. It's the word of God over the superficial, passing, ever-fading, always-changing ideas of people around us. And speak this word. Do, Do you ever stay silent with the gospel, with the word of God, because you're concerned about what other people might think of you? if you talk about Jesus. God, deliver us from slavery to what others think about us that keeps us from believing and speaking your word that's life, knowing we will not get the applause of this world. That's takeaway number five. Expect opposition when God sends you Did you notice in Jesus' story, everyone sent by God is beaten, struck, shamed, or killed? Everybody. Here I am, send me, is a dangerous prayer to pray in this world. So don't live under the illusion that obedience to God means ease, acceptance, comfort, or safety in this world. We see this all over Scripture. Obedience to God will lead to lack of ease, lack of acceptance, lack of comfort, and lack of safety in this world. I was just, I was meeting this morning with our brother from Zambia who's visiting here and today, and he had just gotten off the phone with a brother from Sudan. I trust you've been seeing what's happening in Sudan. I trust you're praying for God's mercy in Sudan right now. And this is a brother who moved to Sudan for the spread of the gospel in Sudan. Moved to Khartoum. Not under the illusion that this is, this is a, like a great retirement plan, a dreamy place to be. Like, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. And he's, he's in the middle of it now. Got to help us to expect opposition when he sends us. And to face that opposition with Christ's character and resolve. Because he's worth it. That's takeaway number six. Praise God for his shocking love for sinners like you and me. (laughs) I've read this story before. But I was so struck studying it this week and just asking the question. Like, you you listen to the story. Don't you wonder why? After the tenants of the vineyard have beaten and killed many servants that the owner had sent, everybody, why would the owner say, I'm going to send my son now? That seems crazy to me. If you're killing everybody I send your way, I'm not inclined to say, "Uh, I'm going to send you my kids now. I care about these more than anybody. I can't imagine sending them to these kind of people. Doesn't that seem crazy? Almost reckless? And in the parable, the owner says, they will respect my son because surely they should. And the picture is so clear. God sent Jesus, his beloved son, knowing they should respect him, but also knowing they wouldn't. And God sent him anyway. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked, because God loves his vineyard. He loves people. 
Even sinful people, he loves them so much that he sends his son to die for them. This is the gospel. If, if you are visiting today or exploring Christianity, maybe this is your first time ever in church or maybe first time in this church and you're wondering, what does this have to do with me? What does this story have to do with my life? Here's what it has to do with all of us, including you. We are all the tenants in this story. We have all been given grace from God, stewardship from God in our lives, and all of us have defied God. All, it looks different in all of our lives. We've all turned aside from God, his ways to ourselves and our own ways. We've all rebelled, sinned against God, the owner of our lives. And we all deserve judgment, eternal just judgment due our sin. But the shocking news of the Bible is that God loves us so much, he has sent his son to live a life of no sin, and then even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for our sin. And then the shock goes to a whole other level when three days later he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. So that anyone, anywhere, no matter how you have defied God, he loves you. And if you will trust in Jesus, he will forgive you of all your sin and to restore you to relationship with him for all of eternity as his son or daughter. That's shocking love. And the takeaway for some today is receive this love in your heart. Maybe for the first time, receive this love, put your faith in Jesus. God is speaking to your heart right now saying, I love you, trust in me. Others, maybe for the first time in a long time, you've wandered from relationship with God and he is saying, I still love you. Return to me. Praise God for his shocking love for sinners. And then when you do, takeaway number seven, spread the good news of God's love and Jesus' authority among all the nations. Oh. So at the end of Jesus' story, when the owner says he will give the vineyard to others, that's a clear reference to how, as the Jewish people were rejecting Jesus, God was inviting the Gentiles, the nations, to become a full part of his people. So now make the connection with where we were last week when Jesus overturned those tables. He said, my house will be a house of prayer for what? For all the nations, all the peoples who I'm bringing in as my people. So... So the clear takeaway from that is spread this good news, shocking news of God's love and Jesus' authority. Picture it, the good news of Jesus' authority. It's the greatest news in the world for us to proclaim in Sudan right now that Jesus has authority over sin and war and death. That Jesus is able to save. It's the greatest news in the world. So spread it among all the nations. Again, last week, starting right where you live, right here in this city, let's spread this good news right here. Jesus has conquered sin and death, and people can have eternal life in him. Like, surely that's worthy of inserting in the conversation sometime this week instead of just talking about the weather. Right? We, we have so many tried conversations. At some point, let's talk about what matters forever. Spread this good news right here and among all the peoples of the world. 
wherever you lead, God, just as we prayed last week. So here's how I want to close. I want to lead us into just prayer and reflection before God. In picture, God's speaking to us. So I want to ask you a question. Which of these takeaways is God speaking most clearly to you right now? And I want to give you a moment just to prayerfully reflect. Listen. What is God saying to you? And then I and other pastors at other locations want to lead you in a time of response to what God is saying. So can we just pause right now just to ask, God, please take your word in this moment and do it all. Confront and encourage and comfort and convict us and break us and put it back, it's back together again, better than before. Like, how are you speaking this word to each of us right now? Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacey Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram 